Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. Later in the show, we'll hear how two local activists have never stopped worrying about the bomb, but did fall in love in their effort to dismantle nuclear arms. Tim and Wallace and Vicki Elson of Northampton-based NuclearBan.us join us to talk about the Nuclear Ban Treaty, which Congressman McGovern recently testified in favor of in front of the U.N. Plus, dinosaurs, because dinosaurs are actually a big thing in this area, and the history that surrounds that discovery even more so. The Great Greenfield Dino Fest happens this weekend, and we'll speak with Chris Jenke and Tim Newman about bringing history and art and not-so-giant dead lizards together at this event. But first, further down the Word of the Year rabbit hole... Emily Brewster, resident wordster from Merriam-Webster and uh, spouse of other guest of today's show, Chris Janke, the artist. We have been talking about Merriam-Webster and its word of the year, authentic. And Merriam-Webster's word of the year chosen by uh, lookups at merriam-webster.com as opposed to the Oxford English Dictionary's way of doing it, which is they let people vote this year, but it was Riz. I'm surprised <laughs> it wasn't Wordy McWordface. That wasn't one of the options. But the runners up for word of the year with Merriam-Webster are almost as interesting because it shows you a little bit of the psychology of a year because what caused people to go to the dictionary and look up these particular words. We're talking about more of the runners up, including, you teased last week, your favorite runner up. Let's say that one for last. I mean, I'm mostly just okay. hoping that Elon Musk is a little less involved yeah, in the ones from this week, because last week he was involved in most of it. Yeah. Let's see how far we can get without mentioning him. For a bunch of these, it's just kind of a, a, a very short period of time that they were looked up uh, an enormous amount. For example, this one, implode. Oh, dear. Huh. <laughs> what imploded? In June, something imploded. My a career. Submersible. Stop it. Oh, a submersible. Yes. Oh, that's yeah. right. Oh, that. <laughs> that's right. I mean, not to make light of the death of anyone, but there were so many tasty memes that came out when that happened. Tell us what happened, though, Emily Brewster. Uh, a submersible named the Titan was on its way to visit the wreck of the Titanic and something went wrong and it imploded. To implode means that it, it burst inward undergoing violent compression. And people are so much more familiar with the word explode, I think, that they wanted to better understand what implode means. While we're talking about implode, I do want to mention something really delightful about the word explode. Yes! Do you know any interesting facts about the word explode? No. No. It comes from the Latin word explodere, which means to drive off the stage by clapping. Whoa! Oh. To drive off the stage by clapping? Is that how they used to try to end a show? Yeah. I can only assume it was the equivalent of the gong. I That's love amazing. when words have hyper-specific meanings yeah. like that. Now we use a clap to signal that we really like what you did. But That's I guess what you then think. They Get off the stage! Yeah. Get off the stage! Get yeah. off the stage! I'm exploding you off the stage! <laughs> That's wonderful, yeah. but when you say it in today's context, that sounds so dirty and maybe like something you could be taken in for. Yeah. I can think of several characters in 2024 that I would like to explode from the stage. <laughs> What's some more runners-up for Word of the Year, Emily Brewster? There were a variety of circumstances that led to people looking this word up. The word is covenant. Covenant we define as a formal, solemn, or binding agreement. Also as a written agreement or promise. 
The first time this word spiked was a tragic school shooting. A school called Covenant School in Nashville had a shooting on March 27th. Yikes. So that event coincided with lookups. Um, then later, during the month of April, Guy Ritchie's The Covenant, a oh, movie, movie that depicts the rescue of an Afghan interpreter hmm. who had saved the life of a U.S. soldier in combat, that also coincided with spikes in lookups. And then in May, there was a new novel by Abraham Verghese called The Covenant of Water. That was an instant bestseller and also part of Oprah's book club. Mm. Big year for yeah. covenants, I guess. <laughs> And then in early November, our, our speaker of the House of Representatives, Mike Johnson, um, there are reports that he uses an app called Covenant Eyes to monitor the websites he visits. And this app makes it possible for his accountability partner to see which, which websites he visits. Uh, in this case, it's his teenage son. Wow. That's Orwellian. Interestingly enough, they've both purchased videos from George Santos on Cameo with this Covenant app on their phone. Hey, Julia. Congratulations on getting your driving test. You prove that even the legally blind can do it. I know that it's a bummer that right after you got the test and you show that you weren't a quitter, you got into that little accident. Look. A body cast ain't much. Goodness gracious. If you haven't been watching Jimmy Kimmel, he he has been going to town and maybe getting sued by George Santos for how many videos he has paid for George Santos to do on camera. I think George Santos is just taking that money and putting it towards his legal fees. I think so, too. (laughs) Oh, wow. I didn't hear about that. You literally had a friend who got a George Santos cameo. Yeah, I'm actually looking it up now. Hey, Ebro. I just wanted to stop by and say, chin up, girl. Here's what we should do. We should connect, and I'm going to go find you your next boo. How about that? Are there more words, yes, Emily Brewster, that have spiked? We still haven't heard your favorite uh, runner-up for Word no, of the Year 2020. No, I'm saving it. Yes, excellent. Saving it, saving it for right. marriage, just like the Covenant app. This word has a silent C, and it was looked up a lot because of four separate legal cases. Is the word... Indictment? Yes! I did everything right and they (laughs) indicted me! I did everything right and they indicted me! My friends and I say that around all the time. I wonder who on earth this could be talking about. Remind people why there is what seems to be an extraneous C in indictment. Oh, it's definitely extraneous and it didn't used to be there. There were scholars in the Renaissance who were correcting the English of the French borrowing and they put the C in it because the Latin root has the C in it. So before that, it was spelled very reasonably, I-N-D-I-T-E. And then they decided to um, to do that for us. So now it's I-N-D-I-C-T, but not pronounced indict. Well, it depends on who you ask. I did everything right and they indicted me. I was going to say, are we back to George Santos? I did everything right and they indicted me. We define indict as to charge with a crime by the finding or presentment of a jury, such as a grand jury, in due form of law. We'll see how many times that gets looked up as we go forward into 2024. Yeah, it's a good word to look up. We haven't gotten to your favorite yet. No, and we've got one more before the favorite, and it's a terrible one. The word kibbutz was looked up. Oh, Yeah. 
I think we know why. And I think we know yeah. when, probably, that started to be looked up, probably very Might have had specifically. A sp- spike in early October, I have a feeling. Yes. That's right. For those yes. who aren't familiar with the word kibbutz and why people might have started looking it up on specifically October 7th, talk to us about that word. Well, it's a Hebrew word. It's a modern Hebrew word, and it refers to a communal farm or a settlement in Israel. Uh, kibbutzim, that's the plural, uh, takes the, the Hebrew plural, even though it's in English, were attacked as part of Hamas's attack on Israel. I got to visit several kibbutzim when I was uh, over there in the Holy Land back in a more peaceful time in the late 90s. All right, are you two ready for my favorite yeah, one? you got to pull us out of this. Yeah, I know. It's just like we just okay. for more Sad peaceful spot. times on the way. Yeah. Drum roll. I was a little disappointed that this one wasn't the actual word of the year because it's a fun word. The word is doppelganger. Oh, nice. I love this word. That is a great word. It's also Yeah, a- I mean it even has an umlaut, you know? Mm-hmm. It's pretty pretty metal. Totally metal. Yeah. It's like spinal tap with an umlaut in the wrong place. <laughs> don't touch well, it. I wasn't, wasn't going to no, touch it. No, don't touch it. I was just it. pointing at it. I... Well, don't point. And yeah. an umlaut is those two dots over a vowel, also, you, yes. unless it's spinal tap. Also, it's one where, like, if you're you're like remotely like kind of familiar with Germanic tendencies, you can totally get what this word means from looking at it. It uh-huh. looks like what it means. Tell us what doppelganger means. Your favorite. Police. What do you understand the German to be? Doppel as in double. Um, yep. And then ganger as in person. Oh, you're so close. The ganger is actually a form of the word to go. Ah. So it means double goer. In German folklore, a doppelganger is a ghostly counterpart of a living person. A dead so ringer. But they're they're a ghost. And in English, you know, doppelganger can refer to somebody who looks very much like you. It uh, can also refer to the opposite side of one's personality, kind of a Jekyll and Hyde kind oh. of thing. Bizarro. Yeah. What going on? Me. Um, Superman? But there were a few different times when this word spiked in lookups. The biggest one was the September release of Naomi Klein's book Doppelganger. But that was not the only instance. There is media coverage of two crimes, one in Germany and one in New York, each involving the murder or attempted murder of someone's lookalike. Whoa. Yeah. So they thought yeah. they were murdering the correct person, but they just saw somebody who looked like the person they wanted to murder and tried to murder them? No, in both cases, somebody was murdering or trying to kill their own doppelganger. Whoa. The New York one involved cheesecake. One of them was lactose intolerant. I can't stand for it. <laughs> I think it was poison cheesecake. Wow. Poison yeah. cheesecake. A Russian woman living in New York City was sentenced to 21 years in jail for poisoning her doppelganger with a sedative-laced cheesecake. Wow. And then stealing her identification and other valuables. Whoa. Is it because the doppelganger was just better at being that person than the person who tried to murder them was? Or is it because they were just so angry that somebody looked just like them? Well, it's useful to be able to take somebody else's identification information if you need to escape. What was the other almost doppelganger murder incident? So the story in Germany is also a one having to do with identity. In that case, a woman, she was searching for a doppelganger who she then met and murdered so that she could make it look like it was she herself who had been murdered so she could flee. Mm, it is an innovative way to fake your own death, to kill yeah. someone who looks just like you, <laughs> plant your yeah. info on them, and run away. So listen, <laughs> Fabulous 413 director Tony Dunn, who is also a bald white man who works at this radio station and gets confused for me all the time. You better watch your back, man. Hey, you don't look enough like each other. Watch out for that cheesecake, Tony Dunn. <laughs> <laughs> 
Now, it's helpful that you two don't have the same name. The same cannot be said to be true of another pair of people who uh, a story about them correlates to a spike in lookups of Doppelganger. <laughs> They're these two men. They're both named Brady Feigl. One is 32, one is 27. They are both minor league baseball pitchers. <laughs> they, they both measure six feet, four inches tall. They both have red hair. They both wear glasses. In 2015, they were mistaken for one another for the first time when they had the exact same elbow surgery performed by the same doctor. Oh my goodness. Uh, that's just isn't too much. that crazy? That's yeah, awesome. That's, a, that's the best doppelganger story ever. It's the future yeah. of cloning. It's not so murdery. And there's something very in interesting that happened why, why this, this story was prominent in 2023 is that the two, they took DNA tests to see if they were actually related and they are not. Weird. So cool. <laughs> I can see clearly, Emily Brewster, resident wordster from Merriam-Webster, why Doppelganger is your favorite runner-up for Merriam-Webster Word of the Year. It's, it's a good one. Yeah. It's the yeah. most fun. And it's real fun to say, too. Doppelganger. Doppelganger. Gesundheit. <laughs> Quick note about my friend. <laughs> can we use this? I love when I get to surprise Khalees with my bumper music. This is my evil twin from... They might they be, be giants. giants. Perfect doppelganger song, especially if your doppelganger is trying to kill you. Oh my goodness. With cheesecake or something else more lovely. A yeah. quick note about uh, my friend who got the George Santos cameo. Her name is Eberu. And as someone with another unusual in America name, I felt like we should just correct that on air so people knew. She deserves a George Santos uh, refund, I think. I don't think she was the one who purchased it. Okay. <laughs> Coming up, thinking globally and acting locally, Northampton-based Nobel Peace Prize winning anti-nuclear activist working on a global nuclear weapons ban treaty and a fossil fuel-free future. We'll talk with Tim and Wallace and Vicki Elson. But up next, we're joined by the word nerd's husband, artist Christopher Janke and also by the Pecumtuck Valley Memorial Association's Tim Newman to talk about Greenfield's Dino Fest. And Giant Candy. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. Local arts, local history, and local lizards. <laughs> Although the producers of this festival would like you to know that dinosaurs are actually the ancestors of birds. You can see it pretty easily. It's the 7th Annual Dino Festival, this Saturday and Sunday, December 16th and 17th. And joining us from the festival is Tim Newman from the Pecumtuck Valley Memorial Association and artist Christopher Janke. Tim Newman, first, what's the Pecumtuck Valley Memorial Association? It's the earliest uh, historical uh, organization in the area. It was started and museum opened its doors to the public in 1880, the same year as the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston and uh -huh. the Metropolitan in New York. So we're in big the big league. But it's a historical society, but also a memorial organization, very interested in indigenous peoples and also in early African-American history. Incorporated somehow into the Dino Fest is going to be one very important African-American, which we'll get to in a little bit. But tell us about the history of dinosaurs in our area for those who aren't familiar with it and why it's such an important piece of the history of Franklin County in particular. Well, back in the uh, 19th century, nobody was using the word dinosaur. But what was discovered in the early 1800s were dinosaur tracks. And one of the runs, as they call a whole series of these, because they were like in herds when they were thought to be birds and flocks, you had all these marks where they had been walking uh, along rivers or such. A local workman, Dexter Marsh, discovered the tracks in Gill 
and they, he passed on information to people like James Dean and Professor Hitchcock, founder of UMass. James um, Dean, not the actor. <laughs> You're tearing me apart! So the early discovery and even deciding that they were not, as they were originally believed to be, themselves birds, was Dr. Hitchcock's uh, contribution that got him world fame. Uh, so one time this was the hotbed of paleontology. Our role in that is that Professor Hitchcock was born in Deerfield and taught at Deerfield Academy, which is our museum's building, Memorial Hall, where he met his wife, Ora White, who was an artist, and illustrated his books with her concept that her husband worked with her on of what these creatures might have looked like. That's amazing to think, too, that this, you know, that this couple is trying to imagine what they would have looked like without any sort of major scientific, like full skeletons at this point. We have a website called Impressions from a Lost World that uh, tells the story, and there are examples of her work. That's Tim Newman from the Pecumtuck Valley Memorial Association, which is one of the organizing bodies behind this, the seventh annual Dino Festival happening this Saturday and Sunday. Throughout Greenfield, mostly, there are going to be a, a sneak preview of a movie that we'll talk about in a little bit. There are Story Wizards Dino Drama from PT Theater. The Lava Center is going to be hosting some events, including the Everlasting Gobstopper. If you know about Charlie and the Chocolate Factory or whatever this new and unnecessary Willy Wonka movie is going to be about, you may have heard of an everlasting gobstopper. But performance artist from Greenfield, co-owner of The Rendezvous and Susie's Third Street Laundry, and happens to be the husband of our word nerd, Emily Brewster, resident wordster from Merriam-Webster, Chris Janke. What's your everlasting gobstopper and its role in this dino fest? My everlasting gobstopper is a little bit different in its, um, let's see, in who digests it than the everlasting gobstopper of the candy fame. And the history of it for me just comes back to, I think I took a ride on the Kinnatucket 2 many years ago. That's the, the boat out of Northfield, where they give you a tour of the Connecticut River. And along that tour, you learn that the geology of each side of the river is different. You also learn about some of the um, strange uh, features of the Connecticut River. And as an artist, I tend to take in obscure facts and then twist them around <laughs> for my own artistic benefit. <laughs> and uh, the Everlasting Gobstopper came out of my interest in that and uh, my interest in sculpture. So I'm giving a lecture that's based on real things, the real geologic history of our valley. But the lecture also focuses on the future geology in our area. We start to imagine what will happen in the next 250 million years mm -hmm. in the Pecumtuck Valley. Is that part of why armored mud balls are kind of attached to your section of the festival? Well, I don't know that, that Professor Little remembers the email exchange that he and I had many years ago when I was asking. I wanted, I wanted some of my um, facts vetted by someone who actually knew something about geology. And uh, he and I exchanged a number of emails, and he was kind enough to answer my questions and shrug a little bit at my suggestions about what will happen in the future. Um, <laughs> but the mud balls uh, definitely are aesthetically similar to a gobstopper. And I'll be making the gobstopper during my lecture. I love it's it. It's a, a large structure. <laughs> that weighs a few hundred pounds. <laughs> and if you missed our conversation from several weeks ago with Professor Richard Little, who is the champion of the Jurassic Armored Mudball 
as the official geological structure of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. I urge you to go to the podcast. That was such a delightful conversation. Look, I heard about armored mud balls. Armored mud balls. Armored mud balls. Our armored mud balls. He will be involved in this Dino Fest too, I'm told. Uh, Chris Janke, the artist, will be doing some Jurassic armored mud ball-esque everlasting gobstopper action at the Dino Festival this Saturday. Yes, he, he's going to be displaying and talking about the armored mud balls just before I give my ridiculous performance. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't get more ridiculous than Jurassic armored mud balls. It's the best. What's an armored mud ball? Oh, we don't want our mud balls unarmored. That's not the ridiculous part. It's the gobstopper part. It's ridiculous. <laughs> you added more ridiculousness to it, which we really much appreciate. Tim Newman from the Pecumtuck Valley Memorial Association, uh, also as part of this, is something historic, but not prehistoric, nothing dinosaur related, but it's a partnership with PT Theater, and it's a sneak preview of a film called The Princes of Deerfield. And we uh, we are sorry to have missed Jonathan Murin from uh, PT Theater, who we invited to this, but tell us what you know about this film that PT Theater is bringing to the Dino Festival, and why. I hate to interpret his work without him being here to correct me. <laughs> but um, he's taken the story and he's used this almost like time travel. You know, so he has kids that are interested in, well, what's the history of our town? In this case, Northfield, celebrating their 350th. At the same time, by the way, that Deerfield's been celebrating its 350th. We use different criteria, by the way, though. Ah. Our, our criteria is based on that official incorporation date of 1675. They weren't incorporated till the 1720s. So uh, anyway. how, are they, how are they getting away with it? I'm the surprised shade. in our valley they have. But... <laughs> the shade. <laughs> We're looking at you, Northfield. And geologically speaking, they're all the same age. They're all the same age. Well, and unfortunately, you know, since we're interested in the Pecumtuck, it's, I think, uh, their 10,000th anniversary. Ah, nice. We have to put it all in perspective. But in in the story, it's children uh, sort of looking into this story and then what they imagine. PT Theater's The Princes of Deerfield, a screening and reception at the Garden Cinema telling the story of Abija and Lucy Prince and a group of children from Deerfield. Children uh, sort of looking into this story and then what they imagine. Lucy as a, as a, a black, very well known for her storytelling and her poetry. Actually, she was a legal mind because she had to defend her land once when when the court uh, was called in Vermont, her neighbors were trying to take her land and her husband was deceased. And so it was unusual for a woman to speak her own case, but twice she did this, had to protect her land. Prince in particular spent a lot of time in Northfield. One of the sad things about enslavement in the North is isolation. And he was the only black child in Northfield. There weren't black adults. Um, it was a big investment to buy an enslaved person. And so frontier settings were not usually the place where you would find an enslaved person. He had some recognition uh, and had his own business here in Deerfield. He did everything from making covens and digging graves to uh, repairing farm equipment. And it's part of the Dino Festival somehow expanding the lens of the Dino Festival to look at the local history. Because uh, you're saying, Tim and and Jonathan from PT Theater, who's behind some of, of the events of this festival happening this weekend, the folks who are credited with discovering all of these dinosaur footprints and the early paleontology that has to do with dinosaurs would have been moving in the same intellectual circles as the folks that are being chronicled in these movies and they're taking a look at? Jonathan came up with the concept of Dexter Marsh's world. And you say, what was going on around him? I don't know that any of the major characters actually met Lucy, but they, they could have because the Hitchcocks were teaching at Deerfield Academy the last time 
uh, Lucy returned to Deerfield. That's Tim Newman from the Pecumtuck Valley Memorial Association, who is part of the 7th Annual Dino Festival happening in Greenfield this Saturday and Sunday. We're also joined by artist Christopher Janke, who is going to be creating an everlasting gobstopper homage to the Connecticut River and the geology and our favorite Jurassic armored mud balls. The festival has always been more about the history surrounding the discovery of dinosaurs in the area as opposed to the dinosaurs themselves. Am I correct in this? Yes. The working class guy that went out and said, hey, you know, these marks in the stone have some meaning. He was laying a sidewalk in front of what was then the new uh, county seat of Greenfield, and the building still stands. His sidewalk isn't there. This is also related to the Bee Festival that um, PD Theater was involved with, and also the Second Congregational Church there in the center of town. Both of the the scientists of the period attended there. Church and science were not at odds in in those days. Yes. Uh, So they claimed (laughs) beekeeping and dinosaur tracks. Dinosaurs changed all that, though, didn't they? Isn't it the dinosaurs that changed all that between science and religion? Yeah. (laughs) We can't can't square this circle with all of our religious writings. Well, the flood, because, again, they thought the the footprints were at one time referred to as Noah's raven's footprints. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because if you remember the story, the carnivorous birds were let out of the ark first, and so they went down and they found food, so they didn't come back. Uh, so then Noah sends out the dove. Then a dinosaur comes and eats the dove right out of the sky. (laughs) Not our dinosaurs. The reason we talk about Hitchcock and all these other people is because, frankly, our local dinosaurs are kind of lame. They're not awesome Tyrannosaurus Rex-type dinosaurs. They're kind of small, little birdie, Podecasaurus holyokensis dinosaurs. But they are the more interesting ones because when you're looking at a T-Rex, it's all alone. They don't travel in herds because carnivores. But it's way more interesting to see all of the habits that you can tell just by a set of footprints or a set of bones, the things you can tell about dinosaur communities from the smaller herbivores or sometimes omnivores is way more interesting. I'll take T-Rex, thank you. Chris Janke... He has no arms. Who is the... It's got <laughs> tiny arms. Is the uh, the sculptor who's doing a performance piece as part of the Dino Fest. And you did talk about imagining a future geology 250 million years from now, but you have conceptual gift bags for this imagined future that people will potentially be receiving at the Dino Festival? I don't know about people receiving them. Oh, okay. He's leaving it. See, that's the art. The artist's uh, way. We, much of what Tim is talking about, you know, all these these characters that appear throughout history appear also in my lecture, and they contribute to uh, an understanding of where we are in time. For example, another thing that I talk about: our sun is about halfway through its life. Four point five billion years ago, it was born, and in about four point five billion years it will have consumed all of its fuel and create an enormous gravitational pull that will suck the entire solar system into itself. Now, that happens after our own planet has consumed all of its fuel and is a dead planet. Those are some of the things that I'll be talking about and some of the future that we'll be imagining in the lecture as we collectively witness the building of the uh, everlasting gobstopper. (laughs) I love it. Dinosaurs went extinct, and you're next, kids. It is the seventh annual Dino Fest featuring PT Theater's The Princes of Deerfield, a screening and reception at the Garden Cinema telling the story of Abijah and Lucy Prince and a group of children from Deerfield. It's got uh, the story Wizards, also from PT Theater. It's uh, fun for the whole family. Certain events ages five plus. Chris Janke's uh, art installation with the Everlasting Gobstoppers and the Jurassic Armored Mudballs recommended for 10 plus. It's happening both days, Saturday and Sunday, throughout downtown 
Greenfield, and you can find more about this great Greenfield Dino Festival on the good old-fashioned Facebook. Tim Newman from the Pocumtuck Valley Memorial Association and artist Chris Janke, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, guys. A lot of bit of history, a little bit of dinosaurs. <laughs> and little bitty dinosaurs. Well, we have a basement full of tracks, so we, there's a lot of dinosaurs. <laughs> you should have someone take a look at that. We can. I wouldn't call an exterminator. <laughs> yeah. Giant birds of Greenfield, giant birds downtown. Giant Up birds next, giant disarming people. nuclear weapons and enabling affections with Tim and Wallace and Vicki Elson, who will elaborate on the nuclear arms ban treaty. Representative McGovern has just testified in favor of in front of the U.N. You're listening to the Fabulous. 413 on 88.5 NEPM. The Fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, homegrown in Hatfield, Massachusetts, and providing energy savings for their customers for over 10 years. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Khalees Smith. And we are joined in the studio by Tim and Wallace, who's the executive director of the Northampton-based NuclearBan.us, who've been overseeing the strategy and campaign to build support for the Nuclear Ban Treaty in the U.S. Congress. He's also the national coordinator of Warheads to Windmills Coalition and author of the forthcoming paperback, Warheads to Windmills, Preventing Climate Catastrophe and Nuclear War, out this Friday, December 15th. The book launch is at 5.30 on Friday at the Northampton Quaker Meeting House on Center Street. We are also joined by Vicki Elson, who is the executive director of Treaty Awareness U.S. and is the creative director and co-founder of NuclearBan.us. NuclearBan.us is a partner of the Nobel Peace Prize winning international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons. Thanks for joining us. Nice to be here. Thanks. We were joking in the green room that um, everybody in Northampton has a Nobel Peace Prize because we also <laughs> have had Dr. Ira Helfand from Northampton on the show talking about this same issue. But uh, and he was is also part of the same organization, too. That So he's got two Nobel Peace Prizes, oh, technically. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is kind of a weird place to start. But do you get an actual prize? Like, is it up in your house somewhere? No, but we've seen it. <laughs> <laughs> where Where is it? Well, it's floating around. I mean, there's there's a copy um, normally in New York, uh-huh. but the, the headquarters is in Geneva of, okay. the, of the ICANN, so that's where they keep it. Oh, I see. Normally. It's not like the Stanley Cup where, like, you get to have it at your house for a, a period of time. No, we get to take our picture with it. Or, yeah. or like the Grammys or Oscars where, like, they give you one to hang on to and then, like, you get sent one later on. They're like, this is your real one. You have to give this one back. That's for TV. We have, like, the five to share. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was awarded to the whole team internationally. So That's the, a lot of people. Yeah. So the executive director uh, who accepted the prize said this is for everybody. You know, so that includes you two. You know, if you are working to promote nuclear disarmament, then you get the Nobel Peace Prize, too. Yes. <laughs> and so there, let's start with this um, nuclear ban treaty. And this is something that both of you have been working on for quite some time, but uh, was in the news again just a couple weeks ago because U.S. Congressman Jim McGovern, who will join us on Friday this week because we're broadcasting uh, live from the Rockwell Museum tomorrow, uh, was the first U.S. congressperson to testify on behalf of this treaty in front of the U.N. That was because of your uh, lobbying efforts? And that's even though it's already been ratified by 69 69 nations? 69 countries, yep. Not the U.S., obviously. Yeah. Yeah. (coughs) Slow to things. Mm -hmm. Well, we tried. We have have, uh, 12 members of Congress who support the U.S. signing the treaty, which is not very many out of 435 or whatever. Another 42... 
support the U.S. embracing the goals of the treaty, whatever that means in, in, exactly. But um, so we tried to get some of them to come to this meeting. We, we The last meeting was in Vienna, which was a bit harder for them. And this one's right around the corner in New York. We thought we'd get a few more. But Jim was the only one who came, along with Representative Lindsay Sabadosa from uh, Northampton. Northampton. So we had a state, lep, state rep as well as a national rep, and they're the only two from the whole country that came from the from you know elected elected officials. Massachusetts represent. Yeah, yes, <laughs> and That's all right. politics being local, there is a movement on Beacon Hill to uh, to uh, sign up to this treaty as much as one can from the state level government as an aspirational note to say that this is something that Massachusetts cares about. Is that what's going on, Vicky? Well, that's that's us too. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, we're working on legislation. Um, you know, it takes a long time to get anything through the Massachusetts State House, but we're getting there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's legislation to uh, create a citizens commission to look into what Massachusetts can do to prevent nuclear war, nuclear accidents, uh, how Massachusetts jobs and people would be affected not only by nuclear war, but also by, you know, if the weapons become illegal, as they are internationally, gradually, um, under the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, um, you know, what happens to those jobs? And can we convert those people in those jobs and those uh, those facilities to, for example, making climate solutions, green technologies? So that's that's an exciting thing. We're making a little headway. We have a hearing coming up. Yeah, J- January 11th. Uh, there's a briefing for members of the State House hosted by J- Joe Comerford. Mm-hmm. Senator Joe Comerford. Senator, Senator, Joe, Comerford. Senator yep. Joe Comerford. And uh, I think Mayor Ciara of Northampton will be will be testifying along with um, people from various other organizations around the state. Because both of them are from Northampton, Joe Comerford and Mayor Shara. So, um, yeah. And like I said, everybody in Northampton has a Nobel Peace Prize. I was going to say, exactly. is this their low-key bid to try and get a part of that sweet <laughs> Nobel Prize action? <laughs> but, We're yeah. speaking with Nobel Prize laureates Tim and Wallace and Vicki Elson, who are part of the uh, organization called nuclearban.us, who's pushing for this nuclear ban treaty and trying to convince the United States to sign up to it. There are many nations who have signed up to it. Uh, are any of the nations who are currently signed onto the treaty nuclear powers? No, no. Um, but if you look in uh, chapter um, uh, 10 and 11 of the book, you will, you will see uh, the breakdown of countries that have so far ratified the treaty. Some of them are very important allies of the U.S., like, the, like Ireland. Uh-huh. Um, the countries that have signed and so far not yet ratified, but, but are in the process of ratifying. And those include two of the biggest countries in the world, Brazil and Indonesia, who are going to come out any day now uh, in, in uh, ratification of the treaty. And then there's the countries that are in the process, that voted for it, uh, who haven't signed it yet. Um, and that includes some a lot of countries in the Middle East, for instance, who have you know important military ties to the U.S. as we know. Um, and then there's the countries in uh, particularly in Europe, but also Australia, Japan, Canada. They've got huge majorities of support for the treaty. They've got a lot of uh, members of the parliaments or members of Congress that support it. And sooner or later, they will they will come on board. So that's that's our hope. We're speaking with Vicki Elson and Tim and Wallace about nuclear weapons and nuclear ban. U.S. and this nuclear weapons ban treaty. We uh, the, there's this atomic clock or this uh, what is it? The Union the of Atomic clock. Scientists, the yep. Doomsday Clock, that um, tells us how close to midnight we are, which would mean there would be some form of 
a nuclear disaster. Uh, it's not looking good on that clock, and it hasn't for several years now, um, especially in the Trump presidency with some vocal threats that seemed to uh, tilt towards nuclear weapons being used by the United States. But now with the war that has gone on in Russia with some uh, Israeli politicians uh, also intimating the potential use of nuclear weapons, um, we are at an inflection point. What would this treaty, if one a nuclear power or all the nuclear power signed up to it, what would that mean? What, what would happen the next day if this treaty was ratified? Well, so one of the things that we're trying to c clarify for people is the difference between signing the treaty and ratifying it. Right. right. Because, you know, President Biden could sign the treaty tomorrow and it wouldn't actually change anything. Mm -hmm. It would mean that the U.S. is serious about its commitment that it's been making for the last 50 years to get rid of nuclear weapons. Um, but once once the country ratifies, and we, we don't expect the U.S. to ratify the treaty without the other nuclear countries doing so at the same time. Right. So that's, that's part of the process of building up the support for this treaty and getting them all on board. But once, they, once it was ratified, they have to come up with a time-bound, legally binding, irreversible plan for how they're going to get rid of all the nuclear weapons. And, you know, that could involve all kinds of things. But we already know that it's an easy thing to do. They've done it. They've, you know, we, we had 60,000 nuclear weapons at the end of the Cold War, and now it, globally, and now there's only 15,000, which is still too many. But, I mean, <laughs> they, they got rid of the rest of them, and they mm. dismantled them. There's, I've seen pictures. You can look on Google, and you can see pictures of planes that have been chopped in half and missiles. There's a, there's a sculpture outside the UN. I don't know if you've ever been down there, but there's a sculpture made from the bits of U.S. and Soviet missiles that were taken apart at the end of the Cold War and turned into a sculpture. So we know it's possible, and they just have to do it. You know, it um, just takes some political will. The, meanwhile, though, we're hearing from the Biden administration even that they would like to update the nuclear arsenal to the tune of trillions and trillions of dollars. Does, is it a one step forward, two steps back situation, Vicky? Well, it's, it, it's a bit of a struggle. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, we believe that the people that are really pulling the strings here are the profiteers in both the fossil fuels industry and the nuclear weapons industry. They have power over the politicians. And um, so I, I would suggest that, um, you know, part of our strategy is to pester and put pressure on the predatory profiteers to prioritize people over terrible tools of tragedy and let them push powerful politicians to help them convert to more positive products. I love alliteration so much. <laughs> well, Vicky is our ch in charge of our alliteration that, that took, department. Um, <laughs> yes, that's alliteration. I, the thesaurus was also very helpful. Exactly. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, if we, if we have people working together with their institutions, their cities, their states to boycott and divest and stigmatize uh, from both fossil fuels and nuclear weapons. And meanwhile, we have countries uh, also applying pressure on those companies. Um, like it, Ireland, for example, you know, is, a, is a, our favorite you know, example in the nuclear ban treaty because they have uh, a law there that says that if you have anything to do with the, with the nuclear weapons industry, anything, you can go to jail for the rest of your life. Wow. Ireland. And they're the only ones that are saying anything that strong so far. But these people are threatening the existence of all of us every single minute of every single day. You know, this if that's not a crime, I don't know what is. I've learned from you two over the years and the conversations that we've had, as well as Dr. Ira Helfand, who we've had on before, too, that a, a small 
nuclear war oh, yeah. would be catastrophic for human beings oh, and, and life on Earth. Yes. Talk about how on a razor's edge we are. Like We're not talking about necessarily thousands of giant nuclear weapons going off and destroying the planet. It could be much smaller. Yeah, I mean, um, Dr. Ira Helfand is is best at at describing you know the details of all the all the consequences of having uh, having a nuclear weapon go off anywhere you know in Northampton or or Springfield or Boston. I mean, you know, the these weapons are people don't don't really understand the scale of these weapons uh, that are unlike anything, and that's why that's why we have to get rid of them. Not only because they're they're so dangerous and so um, stupid, but because they're useless as, you know, I mean, they, they can't be used without destroying an entire city. You know, small, we're talking about small nuclear weapons. The, the, the weapons that we have now in the arsenals of U.S. and Russia are many, many times bigger than the ones that destroyed the entire cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. They're just l- ludicrously overkill. And, um, uh, and any kind of use of nuclear weapons would be a disaster for the for the entire planet. I mean, one of the one of the statistics is that one nuclear weapon going off in any modern day city would overwhelm the entire humanitarian relief capability of the world. You know, the uh, the International Red Cross, all the all the UN agencies, the the um, you know just one. The burn centers would all be overflowing all oh, over wow. the planet. Yeah, that's unbelievable. That's yeah. if they could even get in there to get right. people to a hospital. You know, it's if any helicopters could be nearby or any, you know, yeah. yeah. We're speaking with Vicki Elson and Tim and Wallace about the Nuclear Weapons Ban Treaty. You have a new book that comes out that we're going to talk about in just a little bit called Warheads to Windmills. So that it's connecting the Nuclear Ban Treaty to things that went on, let's say, even this week with the U.N. and COP28 and a, a, our climate future. Plus, we want to talk a little bit about your love story, too, which to me is like one of the sweetest things. I have energy <laughs> questions. So we'll get to those. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> All right. Well, you're listening we'll to the fabulous stop talking for 413 <laughs> and we'll be right back. <laughs> Welcome back to the Fabulous 413. We're speaking with Tim and Wallace and Vicki Elson, two Northampton-based anti-nuclear activists. There's a new book called Warheads to Windmills that Tim and has written and will be launched this Friday. No pun intended, launch at 530 <laughs> at the Northampton Quaker Meeting House on Center Street. And in that book, you talk about some false green energy solutions, which I thought was really, really interesting. Can we talk about some of, of those? Because clearly in this talk, we can't go much further without speaking about energy solutions to the fossil fuel industry, because we can't keep doing that. We're going to burn the planet up. But there are some things that people think are green that aren't really as green as they've been told. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, we have, you know, uh, people think the, autom- the the obvious conversion from nuclear weapons to green technologies would be all nuclear power. You know, that's no, it's not green at all. It's uh, only affordable because it started out as uh, being subsidized by the nuclear weapons industry because plutonium is a byproduct. So it was really for making bombs. So uh, and it's it. But it, but that's not the, the main problem with it. The main problem is that it is going to take too long. You know, even if well, besides the other, okay, there are other problems. There's there's Fukushima and there's there's oh, yeah. um, you know Zaporizhia and weaponization of these plants. But um, 
really long story short, it's uh, it's not a climate solution. It's extremely dangerous. It's extremely expensive, and it we simply don't have time to build enough nuclear power plants to make a dent in time to uh, to stop the the climate catastrophe that's unfolding right now. Um, there are things that we need to do for both fossil fuel and uh, nuclear weapon uh, banning between now and 2030 if we're if we're going to make it. Um, and then we have another set of things we need to do between 2030 and 2050. And, we, and what happens now lays the groundwork for those things. So we have to really be on top of both. Um, so the book talks a lot about the, the short term. What do we need to do to lessen the immediate danger and get really moving towards abolition of both of these nightmare things? Um, and then the medium term, um, complete abolition of fossil fuels and nuclear weapons. Uh, I asked him, I said, so, so that's the short and medium term. How come you don't have a chapter on the long term? And he said, well, if we don't do these right, there's no long term. Mm. And that, I, I sat up straight when he said that. <laughs> how long term are we talking about, Tim? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I, I don't know how much, how closely you follow the climate uh, discussions, but the, the you know, most of the talk is about what will happen in this century, you know, by 2100, mm -hmm. if we don't meet the 1.5 degree target. And, you know, the amount of uh, sea level rise, for instance, is measured in centimeters. You know, it's not huge. It would inundate large parts of Florida. You know, millions of people would be affected in Bangladesh and so on. But beyond 2100, you don't hear much talk about this. But in fact, the, the, if the ice caps melt, in, um, you know, we're talking about sea level rise of 200 feet. Now, I don't know how high we are above sea level right here, but oh, we would be underwater. 69 feet. Yeah, we're 69 feet here. Northampton would be uh, on, you know, on the, on the edge ocean of the ocean front. Ocean front, yeah. yeah. So, you know, we're, we're talking huge danger in the longer term if we don't address this now. One thing that I've gotten to know about the both of you is that you are now a married couple, that, but you kind of got to know each other while fighting nuclear weapons. You want to tell <laughs> us your, your love story a little bit here, too? Because I think it, it's wonderful and inspirational. I have often called you the cutest couple in nuclear disarmament. And we have often quoted you saying that because <laughs> we really like it. <laughs> well, the, Vicky, Vicky, Vicky can tell the story about our fourth date. It's, it's my favorite story, really. Um, <clears throat> yeah, our, our fourth date was... Uh, at, well, Tim was working in the, at the UN that week. It was uh, in 2017 when the nuclear ban treaty was being negotiated by uh, delegates and ambassadors at the UN. And he happened to be uh, in town for that at, in New York. He, ordinarily, he lived in England at the time. And um, we found each other online, actually, and discovered on the first date we both had daughters named Maya with pets named Cosmo and a lot of other <laughs> very strange things. Um, but uh, Somehow not doppelgangers. Right, right, right. So it, uh, that was a good segue. Thank you. Um, so uh, he took me to the U.N., and I'd never been to the UN before, and I'm like, oh, God, i got to tell my grandkids, this is the room where it happens. I'm in the room where it happens. Mm -hmm. you know? and, uh, and I happened to be in the building the day that the treaty was voted on by uh, 122 countries voted to adopt the treaty. And there were people in the room who had been in Hiroshima and Nagasaki and had somehow survived and are now very elderly and have worked their whole lives to prevent this from ever happening to anybody ever again. Um, 
it was just it was an incredibly moving time. I wasn't in the actual room. Tim was, and he had the uh, the little plastic earpieces that translate in six languages, you know, but they had run out of them. Uh, so he he was just watching, and and I was in the cafe at the UN texting him what they were saying because I had it on my computer. Um, so we kind of shared the moment, and you know they're supposed to behave really well at the UN and not jump up and down and yell and stuff, but they did when the when this vote happened. People were ecstatic in that room after 72 years of trying to get such a treaty to happen. And now there's talk about getting a fossil fuel treaty as well. Uh, the sooner the better, as far as I'm concerned, on that. And we really see the, the two treaties as being a way that we can work together as two movements, you know, really promoting uh, double abolition. And there was at least a tiny bit of movement at uh, COP28, the UN summit, which you were a part of uh, in response to fossil fuels. It was at least brought up uh, <laughs> as something. I don't think it went nearly as far as uh, climate activists were hoping. But there is a vision in this new book, Warheads to Windmills, written by Tim and Wallace, preventing climate catastrophe and nuclear war. Uh, these two things are connected um, it is interesting that this does leave you at least somewhat hopeful. <laughs> well, we had a live link up between the COP28 and the nuclear ban treaty, which was very exciting. Mm -hmm. And what was, well, we have only about 30 seconds left, but what was one big takeaway from, from the connection between those, the climate activists and the nuclear act? Well, you know, Vicky mentioned the fossil fuel treaty, uh, which is a new idea. They went into the COP28 with two countries in support of it, Tuvalu and Vanuatu, who are both going to disappear in the climate. And they, went, they came out of it with 12 countries. So mm -hmm. they're, and they're very excited about learning lessons from the, the nuclear ban treaty and how they can take forward this idea and build support for it. And so we're working together with them on that, and that's a very exciting development. Cool. Uh, really quickly, what is the difference between the two organizations that you are at the head of uh, Nuclear Ban U.S. and then Treaty Awareness U.S.? <laughs> Treaty Awareness is an educational uh, 501c3. Uh, NuclearBan.us does political work, so it's a 501c4. Cool. Nice. That is Vicki Elson and Timon Wallace, the cutest couple in nuclear disarmament, <laughs> working on the nuclear ban treaty. And Timon has a new book out, a book launched this Friday, 530, Northampton Quaker Meeting House on Center Street, Warheads to Windmills. Thank you both so much for coming in. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Monty. Tomorrow on The Fabulous 413, we're live from the Norman Rockwell Museum in Stockbridge. Where Chief Curator Stephanie Plunkett will walk us through their current exhibits as well as some of Rockwell's more famous wintertime illustrations and hear about some of the events they've got planned for these waning days of the year. We'll also hear about the Triplex Cinema and we'll have live music from Billy Keane from Whiskey Treaty Roadshow. Good show. I'm Monty Belmonte. I'm Kali Smith. We'll see you tomorrow in Stockbridge. <laughs>